0: So I know uh, more than a few of us here have been in long-term dating relationships. Uh, I was in one before I met Danae. And um, when you've been in a relationship for, for more than a few months, it's quite natural for you to begin to, to think ahead. <laughs> begin to sort of think, like, well, this is, this is the person I'm going to be with. It's, it's natural for your mind to begin to settle around this idea that, like, here's the one I'm going to be with. And here's what that's going to look like. Here's what that's going to feel like. Uh, We date in order to find people like that. And when you've dated for more than a few months, it's no longer, well, is this the person? It becomes like, I think this could be the person. And that's uh, scary, but also exciting. It it feels comfortable. It feels like, well, this is what it's going to be. This is what it's going to feel and be like. And and all the things, your mind can't help but go that way. And and it begins to solidify on that. Um, That's why, of course, uh, when you've been dating for someone for multiple months or longer, and it breaks up, uh, that's why it's, it's so disorienting. Uh, that's why it's, it's even devastating, isn't it? Um, you look back and I can look back at the relationship I was in and realize how it was much better <laughs> for us, for her and for me that we didn't stay together. In many ways, it's, it's easy to look back and see that. But in that moment, um, well again, it, it's like the floor has dropped out from under you. Especially when you sort of are sure this is the trajectory I'm on with this person and it all falls apart. If you've experienced that, if you can imagine what that is, I think that can help you understand a bit of what happened to a man named Joseph 2,000 years ago. Uh, you heard in our passage, this guy, Joseph, is a Jewish guy who's, he's a good guy. Uh, he's got a good job. He's a carpenter, and um, he has a kind of job that it's not, I mean, he doesn't make a lot, right? I mean, many standards, he'd be considered poor, but he makes enough to be able to get married and have a family, and he's at that point where that's going to happen. Uh, he's met a young, devout Jewish woman named Mary from a solid family. This is the kind of woman you want to meet and marry and start a family with. And he's found it. And when we meet Joseph in our passage, uh, he is now in a committed relationship with Mary. He's, it says, betrothed to Mary. And betrothed is basically um, like a, a super official engagement. <laughs> um, Back then, if you are betrothed to someone, you were legally committed to marry them. You sort of made this legal commitment. We're bound to one another. That's what Joseph and Mary had. And then you entered a year-long preparation process by which uh, you would prepare for what would then be finalized in a marriage ceremony a year later. And so that's what's happening with Mary and Joseph. So you can imagine over the course of that year, Joseph is imagining the kind of life he's going to have with Mary. He's preparing for it, preparing the home, all that goes along with that. His mind is sort of settled on this direction. But then Joseph gets the shock of his life. He finds out Mary is pregnant. I mean, it's devastating. How can this be? Like, it's Mary. This is a devout Jewish woman. How could she be pregnant? How could she betray him like this? I mean, it's unbelievable. And and according to Jewish law, I mean, he was, I mean, he's a religious, righteous Jew. Like, he can't stay with her. He was bound to publicly divorce her. Public trial, she'd be branded as an adulteress, shamed for this. And in some Jewish circles, in some really strict Jewish villages, she would even be stoned. That's, that's the layout for what should happen, what's supposed to happen. But as we mentioned, Joseph is a good guy. And, I mean, he can't help but still love and care for, for Mary. And so he does really the best that you could do according to custom, according to Jewish law, He decides, it says here, to secretly separate from her, to secretly divorce her. Because remember, they're legally bound to be married. So he's going to do it in a way that sort of separates from her secretly, doesn't publicly humiliate her. Because that's the path. That's the best scenario out of all the things he's facing. But then we're told an angel shows up to Joseph and explains what's going on. And what he learns from the angel changes his mind completely. Instead of divorcing her, see in the last two verses, uh, verse 24, verse 25, he marries her. So that's a a complete change. (laughs) I'm going to divorce her. He talks to the angel. He's going to marry her. So what brings about this change? And this this leads to what I want to talk about this morning. Here's what the angel says to Joseph that changes his mind. Verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived from her What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph learns, first of all, that what's happened is pregnancy is through the will of God. By the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, something that should not be able to happen has happened. Mary is pregnant, and it's in fulfillment of a plan that God has initiated since the foundations of the world. A plan to send someone. We talked about this this last week. A Messiah, an anointed one, someone who's going to come from God, and the purpose of this Messiah we find in the next verse verse 21 here's why jesus this is here's why god is sending this baby to be born verse 21 she mary will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins the child to be born is coming to save his name yeshua translated jesus in our bibles literally means the lord saves And that that name, Yeshua, you know, what we today refer to as Jesus, that was a common name. A lot of Jewish boys were named Jesus back then. But the angel is making a point. In this case, the name matches what he will do. This person, this baby, this person who's going to be born, Jesus will actually do this. In and through Jesus, the Lord will save his people from their sins. And so that's the main thing I want to talk about this morning, just what that really means. Jesus comes to save us. What does that mean to say Jesus saves? And why is it important that Jesus saves? What does it mean that Jesus saves us? Why do we need saving from our sins? That's really where we're going to spend our time this morning, just that, that, that understanding. And so to do that, we've got to break down the phrase that we see in our passage there, that he will save his people from their sins. Just that phrase has a lot in it. So what's the purpose of Jesus? Well, first of all, his purpose, what he, why he comes is he will save, right? she so will bear a son, you're going to call his name Jesus, because he will save. That phrase, he will save, implies that we're in some kind of danger. There's a danger that we're in, and it's the kind of danger that needs saving, right? This is not in danger of, like, not returning a library book, right? This is danger that, like, puts your life at risk, right? So there's a danger that requires saving. The next part says he will save his people. What that's saying is that before the creation of the world, God looked out and saw people and said, all kinds of people, and said, I, I, I wanna make them mine. He <laughs> saw people, all these different people, I'm gonna make them mine. They're gonna be my people, my family, and I see already the danger they're gonna be in, and I'm gonna do something about it. I'm going to act. I'm gonna do something to save these people. I'm not gonna leave them in danger. And you should understand, when, when God looked out and saw these different types of key people and said, I'm gonna make them my people, my family, there's all sorts of kinds of people, all different types of people, people that we have like here in this room. So it was not God just sort of picking one set of people over another set of people? The kind of people that God said are going to be my people are, are rich and poor, powerful and weak, uh, the noteworthy and the outcast, uh, the ignored and the celebrated, the intelligent and the not so intelligent, the educated and not educated, all kinds of people. God looks out and saw them and ultimately really says In all these different types of people, people like in this room, they're in the same place. But we're in the same place, ultimately. No matter who you are, where you're from, there's a danger that's out there. You're in desperate need of help. What God has said is, I looked out and said, they're my people, and I'm going to act. I'm going to save them. I'm going to do something to save them. And what do they need saving from? Well, it's the last part of that, isn't it? We need saving from their sins. So here's the the crux of it, isn't it? Here's the danger. Every one of us, no matter who you are, you need saving. You need help from something, and the help is from sin. The danger that you, need, the help you need to be saved, the help you need that can save you, is sin. What the Bible describes as here as their sins, it's us. What we have in us. We are in danger from our sins. God sends Jesus to save us from that danger. So maybe that question we should ask is, why are our sins so dangerous? What is it about our sins that that we need to be aware of. Well, there's a lot of different ways the Bible talks about sin. And, and if you've been in church a while, you've heard that concept of sin, if you really sort of dig down into it, the Bible lists a lot of different ways of us understanding what sin is and what it does. And some of the ways, this is from a, a commentary I read, um, Fourfold Gospel by John Del Hussein. He lists some of the different ways the Bible describes sin. So the Bible could describe sin as a burden. Right, here's this, this thing that's sort of laid on your heart and your life. You can also describe sin as like a, a divine account. In other words, there's sort of a, a standard that we're, we're meant to keep uh, between us and God. God said there's an agreement between us, and we've fallen short of that standard. We've fallen into debt, right? We've fallen deeper and deeper into debt uh, with, 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 with God. And that's what sin is, the debt that we've accrued. You can also think of sin as a path of direction. Uh, it's a, here's a direction we're supposed to go, and we're now on a wrong path. We've, we've missed the direction we should go, and we're now on a path away from where we're supposed to be, and sin is that wrong path. Um, you can think of sin as a stain or impurity. So imagine I'm wearing an all-white shirt, and I have all these different stains on it. And, more, and the more time goes on, more and more different stains are on it. The stains are a sin, right? That's, that's what sin is. These stains, these impurities upon ourselves, upon our hearts or souls. You can also think of sin as separation. So we're meant to be close to God and to one another, And sin is us being separated from God and separated from one another. So there are all these different descriptions of sin. The thing I want to suggest is that there's a common theme in all these descriptions. And the common theme is that all these descriptions describe ways in which who you are, who you're supposed to be, it's been disrupted. It's been distorted. It's been lessened. You're supposed to be this type of person. You're supposed to think of yourself in this way. You're supposed to live in a certain way. But that's been disrupted and turned and lessened. If you look at each of them. So the burden, thinking of sin as a burden, that implies that you're carrying something on your heart and your soul that you should not be carrying. Like you should be running, but sin is making you limp. It's making you crawl. Thinking of sin as a divine account means that there's this debt like you owe to God, but it shouldn't be that way. You should have a normal relationship with God. There's a standard that was meant to be there between you and God. You weren't meant to have, be bankrupt spiritually in comparison to God. But you are less than where you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to to be at. Path or direction, well, that that implies that there was a path you're supposed to go, a direction, a road you're supposed to travel, and you're (laughs) off-road. You're somewhere else. Again, implying that there was a place you're supposed to be and you're not there anymore. To think of sin as a stain and impurity. White shirts are supposed to be white. Right? There's, there's a soul and a heart and a life and there's a way it's supposed to look like, but now there's all these other things stained on top of it. Separation implies that you're actually meant to be close to God. You're meant to be close to other people, but now there's a gap. There's separation now. And all these things, Again, you know, what we're saying here is there's ways you're supposed to be directions you're supposed to go a person you're supposed to be and the sinister nature of sin i think what really makes it dangerous is we become less than we're supposed to be away from where we're supposed to go and we don't realize it or we realize it and we ignore it we dismiss it we normalize it meanwhile it's slowly destroying you it's leaving you a shadow of who you're supposed to be. You know, I've been rereading uh, the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Many of you have read the book. Probably more of you have seen the movie. And if you've seen the movie, you remember the character Gollum, right? This is how he looked like in the movies. That guy's not looking good. Uh, I mean, he's, he's got rags for clothes. He's got stringy hair. You know, In the book, it really goes into detail describing how he eats raw fish, right? And you see it in the movie, this is like disgusting, right? But he thinks it's like the greatest thing ever, right? Um, that's Golem in the movies. But if you remember, he didn't always look like this, right? I think it's in the second movie they they show how he used to look like. Um, Golem used to be normal. Um, he was happy, uh, had a good life. He had friends, uh, sat in the sun, fished, did all sorts of different things, right? But what happens to Golem? He finds the ring of power, you remember this? He finds the ring, and what happens to him? Well, by the time the main characters meet him in the movies, he looks like this now. He looks like this. What has happened? Well, the ring over over time has slowly changed him, corrupted him, made him different. And you get the sense, mostly without him realizing it, like he's convinced the ring is the best thing that's ever happened to him. (laughs) That has elevated his life. But if you read the books, um, and you read the way characters interact with him, if you watch the movie, like where he started and where he's at now is hugely different. I mean, it's the same person, but not really. It's a shadow of who he is. It's like he's now living in dark caves, caves, mostly naked, (laughs) alone, afraid of the sun, um, eating raw fish. What's happened is this thing has come into his life. And he's normalized it, excused it, even accepted it. And what it's done is enslaved him. Eventually, as you know the story, it destroys him. That's how sin works, isn't it? That's how sin works. That's what makes it so dangerous. Sin is the burden, the stain, the wrong path that slowly but surely changes you. You often don't see it, usually act like it's not happening. Meanwhile, your mind, your heart, your soul, if you have the spiritual eyes to see your mind and heart and soul, is becoming a golem version of yourself. So rather than a patient you, the golem version of you is short-tempered and impatient. Rather than forgiving and gracious, the golem version of you is grudge-holding and self-righteous. Rather than compassionate and sympathetic, the golem version of you is kind of a gossipy mean girl. Rather than generous... The golem you is pretty stingy with their money and with their time. Rather than active and serving, while the golem version of you is passive and apathetic. And here's the thing, if you're honest with yourself right now, what you do is make excuses for the golem version of you. Yeah, I'm impatient and short-tempered, but that's my personality. You don't know my background, what I've been through. Uh, I just went through this breakup or I just lost this job. That's, that's why I'm this version of me. That's, that's an excuse. It's a golem. <laughs> right? You're trying to say me being naked and eating raw fish is okay. <laughs> that's better than where I used to be. You being uh, passive and apathetic, you might say, well, I got a lot going on. I'm busy, etc." That's a golem you. That's a golem version of your heart and soul. As opposed to being active and serving. I mean, on all these different things, uh, what we're saying is here's a version of who you are to be. What sin does is corrupt it and disrupt it and eventually lead you to a hellish eternal death. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't have to be that way. I want you to understand this morning the golem version of you that's in your heart and your soul and mind is not who you are supposed to be. Let's say very clearly it's yucky and it's ugly. It's not who you are supposed to be. It's not where you're supposed to be. Just because you've accepted it and, and normalized it doesn't mean it has to be accepted normalized. There's something that it shouldn't be there. The Bible describes it as sin. In all the different ways the Bible describes sin. What the Bible wants you to understand is the normal version of you is one who glorifies God. In other words, the normal version of your heart and mind and soul is someone who recognizes and is drawn to the beauty of God and the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. You recognize it. You celebrate it. The normal version of you is someone who reflects God. That means you're someone who in your heart and mind and soul, you reflect the justice of God. You reflect the mercy of God. You reflect in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, and in all the different ways that manifests itself, you reflect the love of God. That's the normal you. That is who you're supposed to be, what God created you to be. And part of the journey here is just recognizing all the ways in which you aren't that. The places in your life where you've fallen away from that. And however you want to describe that. It's a burden or it's a debt, a spiritual debt you're, you're, you're accruing. Or it's a stain. All the different ways. The Bible is just sort of a lot of different ways of saying, here's where you're supposed to be and you're not there. You're a worst version of yourself. So that's why we need saving, isn't it? That's why we're talking about what we're talking about this morning. That's why Jesus comes. Jesus comes to give up his life for us so that the burden can be lifted, so that we can be redirected on the path that we're, to the path we're supposed to be, so that the debt can be removed, so that the stain can be removed. Jesus comes to save us out of the sinful, golem version of ourselves so that we can be made into the self that God already sees you to be, so that you can be the self God created you to be. And that self is free of sin and instead is full of the spirit of God. That's who you are. That's what God wants for you. And here's the thing, only God can do it. Only God can make this happen. It's why in our passage we see God realizes, like, this is a big deal. (laughs) Like this golem version of my people that they're selling for and normalized, that they're trapped by. Like they can't free themselves. So this passage tells us God said I need to personally get involved. And that's exactly what he did. When we think of Jesus, we think of someone sent by God. But we should also see Someone who is God, Jesus is God, come to personally save us. He is God born among us. Verses 22 to 23, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the word had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what this passage is, it's not saying that Jesus sort of had another name that people called him by when he was walking around. It's basically saying, This is more of like a title, a way for us to understand what Jesus is about, another way to understand what Jesus does to save us. It's a way of saying Jesus comes to save us, and the way he does it is by coming and being among us, God himself coming and being among us. See, to be saved, we need God. We need God to personally come to us, and that's exactly what he did. Jesus is God truly and fully with us, right alongside us, guiding us, caring for us, saving us. Jesus is God himself. If sin is the problem and God is the solution, Jesus is God personally applying that solution in the in person of Jesus. One of the things we should say is distinctive about Christianity is that Christianity is saying something about how we are saved and God's relationship to us in saving us. If you look at other major religions, there's a founder, a teacher, a sage, a mystic who's, who's going to say, here's God and here's how you find God, and here's the things that you need to do to find God, right? Uh, and, and there's different things, practices you can do to find God. You should understand, if you're going to understand Christianity, or at least wrestle with what Christianity is about, Christianity is saying something different than that. Christianity is saying, uh, you're pretty far from God. <laughs> and I can tell you where God is, but you're not going to get there. Some of you will get closer than others, but ultimately you will not get there. You will not find God. Here's the thing. You don't have to find God. God will find you. God has come to find you and to save you. All you got to do is receive him. You need to find him. He's come to find you. I like this quote from uh, William Barclay. He says this. Jesus was not so much the man born to be king as he was the man born to be savior. Here's the significance of this. When Jesus comes again, as Christians we believe he's coming again. He's coming, yes, fully as king. He's always been king. But it's interesting that the primary interaction of Jesus as he comes and lives among us. Think about the life, we're going to look at the life of Jesus in Matthew. He does not come and live as a king, although he could. Here's the first way God wants to show how he's like, right? Like in person, right? In terms of like what it means to know who God is in person as a human being. Here's how God's going to do it. He decides to do it emphasizing I've come here to save you. I've come here to save you. Here is his kingly action. I come to use all my kingly power and authority to save you. That's how much he cares about us. That's the danger that we're in, and this is how much God has invested himself personally to save us. He comes and lives among us and does everything that's necessary so that he can be at the place to pay the debt, to lift the burden, to cleanse us from sin, to save us to save us into being who we're meant to be, people who know God and love him forever and know people and will love people forever. So how do we respond to this? Let me suggest three things here. Number one, uh, we need to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear ourselves. If there's an issue I worry about, particularly in our current moment, is this even the concept of sin I recognize like we'll use that term, and especially if you've been in church circles, maybe you've normalized it or excused it. Or maybe you're here and you sort of like, that's just like Christian talk. And like, Why do you, that's just, we don't talk about that anymore, right? That's of Christians go overboard on that. And I want to just say, again, the only way you sort of begin to wrestle with these things, if you have, are willing to sort of be honest with yourself. And ask those kind of questions in my own, again, because you can look in the outside and look great. And you have other people tell you, you look great. (laughs) You're doing great. Who cares how you act or how you live as long as you feel good about yourself? And the task here is to, again, be have eyes that look inside your heart, ears to hear your own soul, and to see what's really there. And I use the sort of different categories that I used before. Generous versus stingy. Uh, Compassionate, empathetic versus gossipy. Uh, Forgiving. Versus angry. Um, I mean, I can go through, down the list of different things and just ask where do you fall in those different things and to say, and what excuses do you use to say, well, that's okay because of all these different reasons. People tell me it's okay or I've told myself it's okay. To really do the hard thing is like, it's not okay. It's not okay. But I don't want to leave you there. The eyes to see and the ears to actually see what's not okay, the golem version of yourself, but number two, then, to be willing to confess it. Right? Because you can, some of you have done that first step, but you, that's all, you've stayed there. Man, like, I see what's there, and I'm terrible, I feel terrible, and it's led you on this sort of almost depressive, in some sad cases, suicidal path. Like, that's, that's not what we're doing here. It's to see what's there, but number two, then, to confess it, and to confess it in one direction, towards God. The only person who can receive it and not say, yeah, I want nothing else to do with you, push away from you, or maybe despise you. When we confess the things that are actually there, and when we do so on a regular basis, one of the things that's important about coming in spaces like this on a regular basis is a chance to, at least once a week, say, look, here's where I'm at. <laughs> it's to confess it in the direction of God. And that leads to the third thing I want to say. When we confess it in the direction of God, He forgives us. He forgives us, and by faith, we receive that forgiveness. And that's the third thing. It's faith not in yourself and your ability even to forgive yourself. It's faith in the ability of God to forgive you. Faith in the ability of Jesus. Because our ability to sort of figure out ourselves can wax and wane in different ways. And that's an important process of how you understand yourself and, and where you're going and all those different things. Don't get me wrong. But the strongest thing to rely on is your faith in what God has done in and through Jesus. And that can happen on a daily basis and even if you're not doing it a daily basis, it can happen on a weekly basis. It can happen on a monthly basis. If you've been away from God in church for a long time, it can happen today. Don't care how long it's been. Jesus saves. He always saves. He still saves. He still does what he does. Because Jesus has always had the eyes to see you for who you can really be. And to know where you're really meant to go. And say, let's get there. Let's get there and I will take you there. I see the beautiful version of the man or the woman, of the boy or the girl, of the father and the mother, of the husband, of the wife, of the brother, of the sister, of the coworker I see the beautiful and glorious version of who you're supposed to be, who you're meant to be. Sin is in the way. I'm here to save you out of that. To save you, to restore you, to rescue you, to heal you, to redeem you. I am here to save you in that direction. Let's get there. This is the God we have. This is the Jesus who's come for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And thank you for the fact that, yes, Jesus, you really do save. And Lord, uh, the path there, Lord, it can be hard, Lord. It's recognizing here's who I am. And I've sort of said, yeah, I'm I'm great. (laughs) Or, Or maybe it's like I'm not so great. And we just stay there. We stay in that place. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, I pray for myself. Uh, the paths, Lord, and, that, and that's, even to say it, the things that I've normalized means that I've accepted it for a long time. Lord, help me not to normalize it anymore. And Lord, help me to identify it, with the word the Bible uses, it's sin. It's a burden, it's a debt I'm accruing. It's a, it's a stain on my heart and soul and mind. Help me to say it out loud, to confess it, and to lean then hard on the faith that you give us. Knowing that you've come for us to find us. Lord, we have but to turn and you'll be right there. And so save us, Lord Jesus. Save, Lord, some of us, Lord, for the very first time. Save us, Lord, some of us, Lord, we need to be resaved In the sense, Lord, we've strayed away from you and thought we've fallen away. Lord, but no, Lord, you're right there. Remind us, Lord, that you've saved us and you keep us saved. Cleanse us in all the ways that we need to be. And help us, Lord, to see and be all the things you've meant us to be. Thank you, our God, that you've made us your people. And so, Lord, uh, we trust and rely, Lord, not so much on ourselves, but on you and what you've already done. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.